This is Han Solo, and you're listening to Octo Radio, a Star Wars podcast. I don't know. Fly casual. What is going on, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Octo Radio, a Star Wars podcast. Or if you're joining us for the first time, maybe in some post-Star Wars celebration or even post-Kenobi, post-Kenobi Star Wars hunger, because that's a thing that's in the past now. We're recording this, full disclosure, before the finale, but that's the way time works. So when you hear this, Kenobi will be over. The thing that we've been talking about for years will have come and gone, um, and we'll be moving on to the next thing to get excited about, one of which we will be discussing in depth today, and that is the further adventures of Luke Skywalker, Lando Calrissian, uh, plenty of other characters, some of whom we'll talk about, some of whom we'll keep under wraps. And that, of course, is in Adam Christopher's Shadow of the Sith. Adam Christopher, for those of you that don't know, has worked in the worlds of Stranger Things with Darkness on the Edge of Town, as well as Elementary, Dishonored. He's had stories in both from a certain point of view novels, as well as Star Wars Adventures number 26. Adam Christopher is here with us today. Uh, we're not just talking about him we're talking to him so adam welcome my friend hey how's it going thanks for having me on thanks for coming on man we uh bumped into each other at your uh at your poster signing back in anaheim and there was such a great energy about the mystery surrounding this book about what exactly it meant and i know that i've read it I have two friends that have read it, but it's been very hard to like only talk to those people or, or pretend, you know, hear people theorizing and then not saying anything because you want to preserve those the surprises and those rich character moments. But right off the bat, how has this experience been for you? Uh, at the time of this recording, we're a little over a week out from the proper drop, but you've started to see early reactions or you know, other authors that have a copy. It's always cool to see people like Kevin Scott or Kristen Baver get their copies and then suddenly the, the electricity starts to set in. So how's that been for you? Yeah, really good. I kind of had my first experience with the Star Wars celebration um, because, you know, when you're a writer, you're working on your own, kind of very isolated it can be. You're obviously working with your editor and, and the kind of team. But yeah, Star Wars Celebration, which is my first one, and people had started to read it because, you know, review copies had gone out and people started to talk to me about the book, which was awesome and kind of weird because suddenly it kind of, you get that realization that actually it's out there and that it's no longer this thing that, that you kind of own, you know, whenever you write a book and you send it out and like, it's not yours anymore. Um, yeah, this is a kind of a big story that I'd lived with for, I don't know, a year and then it's kind of kind of out there so it's been really cool yeah and then seeing early reviews and and as you say we're all we've been recording this it's a week out from the release um and it's kind of real and it's happening it's surreal right because it, it doesn't live in like you said in in notes it doesn't live in emails anymore it's actually out there i you post it <laughs> you got your, your physical copies and everything yeah now it's there i i don't have like the knowledge to tell you uh, you know super in-depth specs of the book like what kind of cover paper was used and everything but let me tell you it like it like feels good too yeah like, it feels like just powerful and appropriate for the story i'm really excited for to see this one on shelves to see what exclusive covers come of it to see how people display it at you know at bookstores and things it feels like an event book which is something that we'll talk about I am fascinated by how this came to be, because that's always an interesting thing. Everyone's, every Star Wars author that I've ever spoken to on this show or just 
out in, in the wild or on Twitter has a different story of how they became a part of the Star Wars family. Like I said, you'd already had your Tales of Wild Space adventure. You had already gone into the From a Certain Point of Views volumes one and two. It'd be great to see you there with Return of the Jedi now when that book happens, <laughs> yeah. especially after dealing with some of these characters. But without getting too much into things that you can't say, um, it was public knowledge that you had a Mandalorian novel that was going to happen then for various business and creative reasons didn't happen that stuff happens all the time way more than people realize in, in books especially in ip books and in film and television obviously there's tons of start and stop just a question for your workload was there a time when you were going to do both or was this the replacement for the mandalorian project um it was the replacement um i'm just trying to think of the time scale because i was doing the from a certain point of view empire strikes back story at the same time i was working on mandalorian and then when we had to can that this was like the other book so i got the email and it's just like oh well you know we've got to cancel this book and as you say that happens like it's you know that's just what happens and they were like well we've got this other idea which you might like to do instead and of course when they told me what it was, like I was like, "Are you serious? Like that is the that's the other book?" Um, yeah, and I don't think I've ever replied to an email faster when they kind of asked me to do it because, yeah. like Luke Skywalker and Lando Calrissian, I mean, come on, these are the main characters of Star Wars for me, right? I mean, and that was the thing is that they had Del Rey had been very public, and they were, "Hey, we love Adam. We're going to work with Adam again. This isn't going to go forward, but there is going to be something." And they said that right out of the gate that we're going to give him something else to do. And I was like, "Oh, cool, awesome. That's great. That's that's good." And then we get that drop of the novels that are coming in 2022, whenever that was. And yeah. Star Wars Brotherhood is in there, which was wonderful. Padawans coming down the pipeline after this. Yeah. I can't wait to check yeah. that out with Kirsten White. And then this book, Shadow of the Sith, becomes the talk of the town before there was any art, before there was any names for certain people that we will definitely be talking about, one of whom played by Jodie Comer, now on screen and in our minds on the page. But Shadow of the Sith, the whole idea that Lando Calrissian's scene in Rise of Skywalker with the young heroes, where he gives the very tip of the iceberg of what it's been like in those years, something that him and Luke did. And that just seemed like, oh, wow, what cool world building. I think a lot of us left the theater saying, wow, that'd be cool to see one day or read one day or get in the comic, but never really thinking that it was like going to be soon. Because that's the thing is things have changed in terms of the, I would say the, uh, willingness to show massive events in publishing. It's public knowledge. Chuck Wendegas talked about it when he wrote his Aftermath trilogy. He had some Luke stuff in there. And then in the conversations, they were like, maybe take Luke out. We're not sure. Whereas now... <laughs> They're like, here, tell that story. Get us in there. So you respond to this email. What are your first thoughts in terms of how far you've come on the most personal level that you can sort of convey in terms of this? You said like, these are the main characters of Star Wars for you. You're an original trilogy kid. How has Star Wars brought you to this moment before we actually get into the moment? How has it influenced your style, your desire to tell stories? That's a good point, actually. I mean, I've always, you know, as you said, I'm kind of classic um, child of the 80s. So exactly the right age to have grown up with the original trilogy and playing with the action figures, which is like, I've said this before, it's like playing with the action figures. You know, Star Wars has this kind of, especially the original trilogy, has this massive kind of phenomenon of the of toys. And my kind of two fandoms when I was growing up were Doctor Who and Star Wars. So Star Wars was watching the original trilogy constantly on VHS and playing with all the toys and 
Doctor Who was watching it on TV because I'm from New Zealand and our TV was like 10 years out of date. So I was getting 70s Doctor Who in the 80s and reading the books because Doctor Who has this big history of kind of publishing, you know, target novelizations and my school library like had them all. So I was kind of reading Doctor Who, which which is what made me want to be a writer. But I was playing with Star Wars action figures, creating my own kind of worlds within Star Wars because Star Wars is such a huge kind of mythology, even just based on the original three movies. Um, so that kind of was the foundation, I, like the foundation of me. And here I am, however many years later, like writing Star Wars for real and writing Doctor Who as well, some stuff. Um, it's really cool. And like, well, I say cool, like that's an understatement, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a Star Wars fan for my, my entire life. It's part of part of me. So to say it's cool is like, it's actually it's actually pretty cool. Like it's really cool. Yeah. But also as a professional writer, you know, I've been, my first book came out like 2011, I think, or 12. So 10 years. So I've been doing it long enough that I kind of know what I'm doing. Now, I mean, you know, every writer is different. And the thing about writing is that the more you do it, harder it gets because the more you learn about your own limitations and your own ambitions for what you want to do in the future. So like writing Star Wars properly was something that I wanted always to do, but I knew it was a lot of work to kind of get there. And, you know, I did the, from a certain point of view, stories and the Star Wars adventures. So this is going back several years of kind of working with the team at Delray. And, and finally, everything came together. And it was like, this is the moment that I can kind of do a Star Wars book that is, I mean, a Star Wars book is a Star Wars book. But like you said, this is a Star Wars book that kind of does something sort of almost uniquely positioned being between uh, Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens in that huge time period where we've only seen a few little things like a couple of comics, a couple of books, but not much, which allows us this huge creative freedom. So yeah, going back to the thing with the Mandalorian, it's like, this is the other book. It's like, you're kidding me. This is an opportunity that like doesn't come around very often. So I am excited and thankful and kind of still buzzing and still pinch myself when I think that this is actually like the thing I could do. Yeah. Let's not undersell the fact that this is <laughs> a high pressure scenario in terms of like every Star Wars novel is a high pressure scenario, but there are different kinds of pressure, different kinds of expectations. Like if you look at the Luminous team on the High Republic stuff, that's a pressure in and of itself to establish a history, to establish uh, new worlds, to establish new ways that are also old ways that would inform what we see later. Different challenge. You look at something like, I'm just glancing at my shelf now. You look at something like uh, Crash of Fate, Zoraida Cordova's novel. Those are new characters, so you have to create lots of whole cloth new. Yours is somewhere in the middle of all these things. You're establishing history that is needed for the sequels while also doing follow-up on the originals, while also creating some new stuff whole cloth, but also trying to capture the voices of Mark Hamill and Billy Dee Williams, you know, small-time actors, uh, you know, not a big deal. Yeah, small characters. Um, but it's it's a really unique storm of a lot of factors. And so before we get into that more proper, one thing that the book does that I love and that is very hard to do, I think, is to capture 
all the elements that make Star Wars. And sometimes you can lean all the way into one. Like this is a pilot's book. It can be very military feeling and that's great. But it's that weird cocktail of fantasy, sometimes very dark fantasy, pulp, politics, a little bit of military, a little bit of just fathers, uh, like people like Lando, grief. There's tons of stuff that goes into this from the really heightened stuff to the very intimate and dramatic stuff. Where in your Star Wars fandom do you fall in terms of what attracts you and maybe inform some of this, the decisions that you go for. Cause I'm a big star Wars, like sword and sorcery person. So your first excerpt comes out and it's got, <laughs> it's fancy, yeah. But, yeah. But it has to be Nazgul inspired. <laughs> like, can we confirm that? Like, are these, are these Nazgul inspired creatures? The, the nine. Excerpts? Oh, it's funny. The original draft of that, I think there were six and I was like, yeah, you know what? It needs to be more, maybe make it, make it nine. So I deny all knowledge, honestly. <laughs> But yeah, it's like Star Wars for me is amazing because, okay, well, first of all, I think it's like the greatest creative storytelling mythology we've got in the modern era. And it's just, I mean, I'm understating it again. And we all know this for Star Wars fans. Like it's a phenomenon like no other. The thing with A New Hope, which is the genius of it, is that it is so many things. You know, it's a science fiction movie. It's also a fantasy. It's a Western. It's a samurai movie. It's a swashbuckling epic it's a pulp sci-fi it's got all of these things within it it's um space wizards with laser swords but it's also the kind of chosen one fantasy of the farm boy from tatooine it's the force and kind of mystical stuff with military space opera Mm. so for me and i guess maybe because i grew up with the original trilogy Star Wars can be anything, um, which means you can do, you can do, like you said, you can do two things. You can like focus down on something, the military pilot trilogy. This is the, the, the political type of shenanigans or character backstory is the origin of a character. You can tell all those stories really well. So when I was doing Shadow, I was like, okay, well, if this is between, if this is between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens, and this is new territory, then this is going to be, for me, episode 6.5. This is like, this is a movie. And I thought, as a fan, because I was like, you know, when you do, you, you know, you come up with a story, you're thinking as a fan, firstly, because, not just because it's really cool, but because you've got the knowledge and the kind of the background. So I was like, well, what would I want to see? If this was 6.5, what would I want to see? If I go to a theatre and the movie comes along and you get the logo and the music, like, what happens? So I think because of that, it kind of organically it all came together organically with those different types of elements. You know, there's a bit of dark fantasy and maybe a bit of, bit of horror, but there's there's the kind of the small family, ordinary people stuff. All these things that for me make Star Wars, Star Wars are in the book, but not because I had some kind of master plan of like, I've got to do this and take it off and do this and take it off. It just kind of came together because it was a big story and a big story has a lot of elements. And I was writing a big story because I love Star Wars. And I felt this was a really important story to tell because I could do something with these characters that we hadn't seen before. And I I would say that your commitment to the idea of an episode 6.5 is so evident. I've said it to friends and colleagues, if the Kenobi television series episode 3.5, this is 6.5. They feel (laughs) as inherently tied, in this case, to originals and sequels. It's no secret that this is, like I said, leading directly into lots of elements of all three, particularly Rise of Skywalker in terms of things that are revealed about Ray's parents, who we can now say are, I say Dathan. I don't know if the audiobook yeah, is yeah. Dathan. Uh, no, it should be Dathan. I hope it's Dathan. I hope yeah. it's Dathan. Yeah, Dathan and Miramir, who are 
just delightful. And we'll talk about them in detail in, in a moment. But it, it's got so much of that, uh, that spirit that ties it to both. And to bring it back to, you're getting this email, you commit, it's on, it's happening. What are the initial exciting elements and challenges of taking on people like Luke and Lando that you've known your entire life. Is there a certain process for you to, I mean, I, I would assume, you know, rewatching four five, six is, is a given you do that anyway. Yeah, that's, that's a normal weekend. Yeah. That's not, that's not work. Um, <laughs> but so you know, their voices, is there an intimidation factor of taking them on or is it more so because you've known them for as long as you have, it feels more natural. Well, this is what I love about writing tie-in fiction. So Star Wars, I've done Stranger Things, um, Elementary, Dishonored. You know, if you write a book and say it's 100,000 words, you know, it's got to be a coherent, logical story with a narrative and characters that are developed and have an emotional arc and that people are interested in and care about. And it has to kind of have a plot of some sort and it all has to kind of come together and be well-written and kind of follow the you know story beats that everyone kind of inherently knows. When you do tie-ins, you're doing all that as well as making sure it fits with the universe that you're working in and captures characters that, like you say, people love and have known their whole lives. So, you know, if you've probably all seen it somewhere, but like... If I got it wrong, if I got Luke and Lando wrong, people would know it instantly. Hmm. So this is why I love Titans, because I think I can capture an essence of characters, you know, portrayed by amazing actors. In a way, it's easy because you've got the voice, the look, the mannerisms, everything that the actor puts into the performance. But on the other hand, the flip side is like it's difficult because if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. So I, I had done... Um, elementary, which was the you know modern day Sherlock Holmes series, CBS, two novels, and that was probably I think that was like 2015, but that was my first tie-in work, and that was where like okay, I wanted to write a Doctor Who story when I was a kid. I wanted to write Star Wars. This is my opportunity to see if I can do it because it's a different kind of writing. It uses a different part of your brain, I think, to um, kind of creating your own stuff. And I kind of I really enjoyed it, and I think I really captured. The characters, like to do those books, I had to do like an audition audition chapter for CBS because they were like, well, who is this guy? Does he know what elementary is? I had to do a chapter which had all the main characters and kind of really um, showed them what I could do. And they were like, okay, great, fine. He knows what he's doing. So I think with Star Wars, you know, Luke Skywalker, Lando Carizian and others who appear, the challenge is you've got these amazing characters, but you also you're creating new characters who then have to somehow share scenes and stand up to these other characters that people have known for 40 years. Which again, like it's another challenge. And especially like Dathan and Miramir, they're kind of this weird in between because, yeah, we see them for like five seconds in The Rise of Skywalker, like two lines of dialogue. So they already exist. Like we know what they look like. We know what they sound like. But they kind of, they didn't even have names. So they're a kind of weird thing where I, I have created the characters, but to a pre-existing template yeah you gave them soul and you gave right. them, you filled them with what i felt you know my reading experience of dathan and miramir from the the get i mean you get a little bit of um obviously it, it unravels as it goes on but right up top there's mention of miramir's technical aptitude and and her experience i believe she's from a, a hypercarn is her home if i if i remember that off the top of my head 
people yep, some, correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the trivia is setting in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Soon, soon, this book will be in the trivia rotation for my friends that are listening that like to play oh, right. things. And uh, there's a lot in here uh, to get to get right and wrong. But the 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 experience I had with her and with Dathan is that it almost felt like, and, and you could speak to this and tell me if I'm onto something, that you took what Daisy Ridley brought with Ray and what J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson created Lawrence Kasdan, of course, to Chris Terrio, um, with Ray and sort of reverse engineered aspects of her to the logical conclusion of how would this come from the mother and father? What, what things can we, like we're going backwards, like we things we love about Ray or things that we know Ray can do, how did those trickle down to her? Because I'm watching these two people interact and it's almost like watching the battle that Ray is having internally happen between two people that love each other. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um... You know, Ray doesn't remember her parents or the memories that she has. She's kind of constructed this um, story for herself of what she thinks happened. You know, we kind of get the sense in the sequel trilogy that, you know, she she hates her parents for selling her, she thinks, to Ankar Plutt. But at the same time, she's counting the days until they might come back and get her. So to me, that's a very natural and logical kind of reaction that she would have. You know, in the book, she's six years old. And again, that's the flashback we see in the sequel trilogy where she sees the ship, you know, disappear. But yeah, so like, I don't know if it's nature or nurture kind of concepts, but like, where did she, where did she come from? I mean, where did she come from? But like, what aspects of her are her parents that she never really remembered? And, you know, her parents are two very different people. Well, Nathan obviously is the... <laughs> this kind of legacy that he's got and that he's very aware of, mm-hmm. you know, he's trying to escape his past. And then Miramir, who knows all this because they're in love. So like, there's no secrets, but she devotes herself to kind of trying to find a solution. And they're kind of, they're both very practical in different ways. I mean, Dathan is angsty about his past, but he's also planning things. And again, like there's a line someone pointed out to me is something like he's got a glib tongue and a, a kind of, coy smile or something and they said well that's what Palpatine was in the days of the Senate you know that's that's kind of one of his characteristics so again without even really knowing his own I'd say well, father I know that's the right word but like his origin um, there are parts of Palpatine reflected in Dathan so logically there are parts of, of Miramir and Dathan reflected in Ray. It's yeah. powerful. It is very powerful. And, and like you said, it, it raises those questions that I think are compelling for stories sometimes to raise, but not necessarily get into because it lets you have sort of a relationship with it, how you feel like you can get to Rise of Skywalker and think is are these memories being unlocked mystically by this dagger? Or is it just actual psychological repression? Or is it both? Did her trauma pack all these away um, in a way that other people maybe were privy to? I mean, you can tell in Force Awakens that Maz Kanata knows something's up. Uh, Luke clearly knows something's up with, and we, and then by the time the rise rolls around, Luke's like, yeah, Leia and I figured out what you were. Uh, we, right. <laughs> so it, it, it becomes um, an interesting thing where she's, we are witnessing the things that she will reconcile with, which is super interesting. So on the editorial side and, and the creative process, I mean, everything's a collaboration, especially when you're working with this. I would imagine there was, like with the originals, lots of rewatching the sequel trilogy, lots of saying, oh, can we mind this? Can we mind this? There are other people that pop up, not just going to spoil those because they're very fun and very cool and compelling from the sequel era 
even from games. There's a great video games appearance, which I know everyone will <laughs> applaud, uh, which is fantastic. Um, when you get an assignment like this, how much of it is, and again, this is the answer that varies from author to author, project to project, how much of it is we would like to hit this, this, and this versus you pitching ideas to them. Um, and I'm sure some of that is big concepts, but then also small details. Like at what point do they say, Adam, name her parents? How does something like that happen? I was kind of lucky because they really let me uh, go away and do my thing. Um, you know, as I said, the brief was literally just that bit from the Rise of Skywalker when Lando explains that mission and it was going right that story. And there was things perhaps, you know, obviously there's Ochi and the dagger and setting up stuff that were kind of like, well, you might want to do this and this, but really they kind of let me go for it, which is great. So it was a series of outlines and kind of just refining each of those, which kind of sounds boring, but like, that's what it was. Doing an outline, it's like, I kind of put everything in. I had immediately when I knew this was the book i had some scenes kind of appeared in my mind the scene where she gets the dagger uh, or blade whatever you want to call it and uh something else that was like the first thing that came into my mind so i kind of i did it and oh yeah so some of the cameos you mentioned sequel trilogy characters like there's a guy who has the code name steadfast who we won't reveal what his real name is but it's like it's like i thought well gonna be there somewhere because he's been in the background all the time but it was important that anything that i brought in there was a reason for it so you mentioned a video game character as well it's like well doesn't it's it's a tiny role but like he does something and steadfast um who appears a couple of times like is actually pivotal to to the whole thing and in a way he kind of triggers quite a major turning point in the book and in the whole saga so it was it was kind of like put everything into the outline, expecting them to cut stuff out. It's like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that because that's how tie-ins work. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's Star Wars or elementary or Stranger Things. It's like they know what they want and you kind of have to deliver. But it was really quite a good experience because they're like, well, you could do this or you could push it even further. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll push it even further. Maybe I'll have Anakin appear to Luke thinking again, like, no, you can't possibly do something like that. And they're like, yep, go for it. I'm just lucky. So like this freedom. I mean, I had done Stranger Things uh, novel a couple of years ago, which is the same editorial team at Delray who did Star Wars books. So I'd kind of worked with them and I think they knew what I was like and what I could do and the experience that I had. You know, quite good that I'd done elementary and then I did three novels with Sonnet. So again, this is kind of just experience, 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 which is what they're looking for. They need to be able to give something to somebody and they go away and not have to worry about it or watch over your shoulder is the kind of ideal experience. So I was very lucky. I mean, you know, again, because it's the, I think it's that wide open space mm-hmm. and Luke and Lando, we haven't seen them at this point. So like we could do something. It's also an interesting sort of creative period right now where that initial five years after is being covered in television and that's where your book of boba fett mandalorian ahsoka is playing but you're i believe it was 17 years 17, yeah. uh and so and it's this idea of well the sequel trilogy's done so now we don't have to worry because you couldn't do this you know when there was only seven or when there was only eight because it's like uh oh no we gotta worry and then we have to give the filmmaker what we did it's, it becomes too much of a thing but now that it's established and done you really did get to play in some big big ways like we said you know dathan and miramir not just 
Ray's parents get names, but Ray's parents get complete personalities, dynamics, stuff that is based in romance, stuff that's based in fear, that's based in action. Um, they get some great moments uh, of dealing with some some uh, shady characters that want to wish them harm and some characters that want to help them. And you get really, um, I think, with Dathan's origin story, there's an origin chapter for him that is probably the saddest thing I've experienced in Star Wars. Like it is so grim and so dark and i think that that was something that people were waiting for this book has a lot of this this will change the way you view things now in the films because there was there was questions you know things that you got to unpack and explore like okay we know from the rise of skywalker novelization sort of how his cloning worked but what about that did he stay in a tube the entire time he was on exegol did he walk around did he talk to his clone father like those types of things must have been so fun to explore you even you named lando's daughter you gave uh, flashbacks of some of ochi's previous work you know there are so many things to flesh out these people what excited you the most to bring to lucasfilm and say how about this you know was it anakin that what is anakin doing as a ghost that type of stuff yeah i think that was probably the big one um but again anything that i wanted to put in was there for a reason mm -hmm. and so long as it was there clearly was a reason i think it was kind of good to go I mean, you mentioned even a bit of backstory about Ochi, you know, because he's called, Lando calls him a Jedi hunter. In the Vader comic, he's kind of this weird assassin bounty hunter hybrid who kind of irritates Vader. But clearly, if he was back in the Clone Wars as a Jedi hunter, what would he be? So again, a little kind of a good reason to show that. We had so much that was hinted at in the sequels that was that was ripe for exploration. And I think it's important to kind of show stuff. So let's show Dathan's experience as a child on Exegol. Like Exegol is a nightmare planet. I mean, to say it's horrible is kind of understating it. So what on earth would a a childhood on such a planet be like so it kind of like well i've got to i've got to explore that somehow you know and then in contrast to miramir's kind of upbringing which we get into that so again it was organic this whole book was kind of organic stuff that was in there i mean not i mean not saying i didn't put in stuff because it was really cool because i thought you know as soon as i got the idea for um the video game character that we're not going to mention it's like well yeah it became so obvious that he or she would be a character that would interact with Luke and Lando in a meaningful way because they were ideally placed already, thanks to video games, in a, in a kind of good position. So, yeah, it was like the, the Ochi flashback, I think, was again something I thought they'd just go, no, you can't do that. But they did. Because also, like, the whole book is full of dreams and flashbacks and kind of memories so whether whether things were as they were or not or whether it's just OG having a dream there's there's wiggle room there yeah you play so much with that stuff that is in in people's minds in their hearts sort of corrupting influences are throughout um play, play a role throughout the book things uh like dark side artifacts and stuff like that how do you approach writing sort of the star wars myth mythology the mythological aspects what is your perspective on the dark side how did you feel that the battle between dark and light should be portrayed at this point when it's dormant to the known galaxy you know we're still yeah. in, still in peacetime but enough that luke skywalker's journey as the jedi master ends up logically where it is by the time i was gonna say by the sequels but really you know charles soul's 
comic book series, The Rise of Kylo Ren. That's sort of our, that was our previous look. How do you keep that consistent of facing down the dark side and flushing it out while also making sure that our journey remains what we witnessed it to be? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research in a book like this um, and a lot of kind of Wikipedia rabbit holes that I disappeared down for days and days. But I kind of love this kind of stuff. You know, for me, Star Wars is sort of science fiction, but it's got this other fantastical element. And especially when you look at the Sith and the dark side, you can really push it to kind of arcane and esoteric dark fantasy. And I kind of really turned it up a bit on on that kind of thing because it suited the character and suited um what was going on uh with the sith i mean the whole thing with the cult of the sith eternal and you know palpatine cheating death i mean it's all extremely fantastical in a very kind of dark um magic kind of way which is cool so you can do that in star wars without it being overly ridiculously fantastical it's still to me i mean to me fundamentally star wars is still science fiction so i enjoy overlaying things like horror and fantasy on top of like a solid science fiction skeleton because you know it's spaceships and um, planets and that kind of grand space opera so yeah so like you know light and dark and the jedi balance of the force means that there's no dark side because the ultimate time of peace is the jedi order and the darkness has been banished, which is really interesting. I think that's kind of George Lucas's original kind of concept. Um, so, yeah, the idea that if the Sith are dormant and Luke is rebuilding the Jedi, but then this kind of, as the title of the book, the shadow of the Sith reappears, it can throw Luke off so badly and have such a kind of influence over events in the galaxy when it's just a little sliver of what's going on. It's really interesting. You know, the dark side is so powerful. The light side is, yeah, the dark side is powerful because, like, the whole thing about the dark side is it's about giving into temptation and surrendering, your, surrendering yourself to your fears, whereas the light side is all about control. And yeah. it's so easy then for a little bit of darkness to throw that control off, which I kind of explored. It's really kind of fascinating. It is. I mean, the light side is especially for someone like Luke Skywalker. This is Luke Skywalker at the height of his power, which is something, I mean, just on, on, on the level of like, you get to write Luke. Some people get to write farm boy Luke. Some people get to write Luke circa, you know, b- between original trilogy films, like Charles Soule's doing right now in his main uh, Star Wars uh, run for Marvel. You're writing the Luke that we haven't seen, but we've always thought about, which is, I mean, we saw him in Legends, but in canon, this 40-year-old Luke Skywalker with a beard, with a functioning school, the school that he was getting ready to build and have Grogu as his first student, and then that didn't work out. Well, now it's, <laughs> now it's working. Now it's actually yeah, yeah. functioning. And yeah. to see him at the height of his powers is incredible and he inspires awe, but there is still this theme that the light side is very much so based in trust. There's a lot of moments where he feels something and another character will say, oh, is he, you know, he's sort of like, you, you good? You, you're feeling something? Is there, is there something going on? And that requires a leap of faith every time. Yeah. The dark side is immediate gratification. The dark side is we're going to get this thing, whether it's this dagger, these crystals, this yeah. uh, science yeah. experiment, this thing, like we're always going to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing with really concrete goals because they don't have trust. They can't just let a feeling sort of carry them. And I think that 
there's so much great exploration of that in Star Wars animation and different comics and stuff, the higher public right now. And I think that this is another key exploration of that. I loved your perspective on portraying your villains as victims of the dark side, but also willing participants, which is a very difficult thing in Star yeah. Wars. Lots yeah. of conversations like, yes, Anakin Skywalker, undoubtedly a victim of circumstance. However, he still made his choices. And that that's always a thing that fans will go on about forever. But you, you really honed in on it here. Even with Anakin now purified and turned to the light, um, you get that. I mean, that was the excerpt that rocked the world, which is him showing up. Luke doesn't know who it is. Oh, is it Obi-Wan? No, it's not Obi-Wan. It's my father. And it's this crazy moment of this blue force ghost Anakin facing down these wraiths. And then that continues and you get a conversation with them on Tython, which is so beautiful. Talk to me about trying to find the voices for characters that, like you said, sort of similar to Dathan and Miramir, where we know how Anakin sounds, but we don't know how 40-something-year-old Anakin post Vader would sound this is the stuff people have been thinking about since 83 <laughs> yeah um I was very careful basically yeah Anakin I really handled with kind of the white gloves because it was it was I knew it was going to be difficult I mean it's such an, a kind of momentous moment for Luke and it's like it's part of the story but like it's not kind of like I don't want to say it's 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 no it is it is central to the story yeah but it's kind of it's a weird, I don't know how to describe it, like it's a standout scene because it kind of it kind of means so much mm-hmm. to Luke personally and to the story. And to me when I was writing it, I was like, this is like a moment of Star Wars history. What would Hayden Christensen have done? Again, this is the, the idea of it being cinematic and kind of epic. And the episode 6.5 is like, well, they'd get Hayden Christensen. And what would he do? Um, again, like, it's just only one part of the book, but like, it's there for a reason. Yeah. It's not just because it was cool to do. I mean, it is cool to do. I was kind of like, yeah, as I said, it's one of the first things I wrote. Um, actually, yeah, that was it. It was it was and the Dagger and then Exegol Vision with Anakin. So I kind of had the goosebumps writing it because it was important and it was really cool. Oh, I mean, I had goosebumps reading it. I, I mean, I, I think I sent you, I think when I first started reading it, I sent you a DM and I knew we would talk down the road, but I was like, hey, I just got to tell you, I just read the, the Tython scene and I, I have chills. Like it's, yeah, yeah. Because you don't expect it to continue in the way that it does. And, and it does channel Hayden so much, but also James Earl Jones. Like it's sort of Hayden. It's like, like James Earl Jones by way of Hayden because he is speaking older. Like he has, you know, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. Like, there's a lot of my son and there's a lot of sort of like some sort of operatic, not speechifying because it is a back and forth, but it's, it's a, it's, there's an operatic tone to how much he cares. And you could tell that both of these guys wish that they could have a sit down without something horrible happening at the, at the present. Yeah. Um, but it is sort of a, you have work to do and I'm sorry, this is all I can give. And there's a bittersweetness to it that I think you yeah. really captured. And I think also it's that, you know, the end of Return of the Jedi, you know, we see Vader unmasked and the way he's portrayed there is a kind of very much an older person. But then when we get the special editions, we now have Hayden Christensen appearing at the end as a kind of younger uh, force ghost. So I really wanted to blend the two together um, because 
he wouldn't just, you know, he's been redeemed in death to the point before he kind of turned to the dark side. So yes, he's Hayden Christensen, but there's still, he's not just erased the 20 years where he was Vader or however long it was. Yeah. So I really wanted to try and capture that in his appearance. So yeah, you're right. The way he speaks and, and why he's there for a reason, he's trying to convey a message and it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is difficult for him. And, and that's something that uh, Claudia Gray and her, from a certain point of view story, Master and Apprentice before the novel proper Master and Apprentice, Qui-Gon's experience becoming a Force ghost is described. Like you're pulling yourself out of eternity to come back to the corporeal plane to help in mm-hmm. whatever way that is. And there's so much power to it. And I love how this new canon era has played with the Force in so many different ways. You look at something like Last Jedi, Luke chooses how he projects this image of himself for the Battle of Crate, and he chooses to appear younger and more spry and more knightly than he actually is on the island when he's doing uh, the Force technique. The, the Luke that he projects is sort of the Luke that we have here. And Yeah, pretty and much. Yeah. And it's int- it was so cool to spend time with that guy as well as Lando, which is the other thing that, that we should definitely talk about because that to me, I think was the most impressive tonal balancing act because he is still Lando Calrissian. He's still the old smoothie. And in the same way that we see Billy D now in his eighties gives that great performance in Rise of Skywalker, where it's like, he's still there going all the way back to Donald Glover and Solo, same guy. But this is a few years after tragedy after his daughter who is named in this book Kadara Calrissian that's lingering over everything that he does and there's this push pull between trying to be the guy trying to be Baron Landonis Balthazar Calrissian and being (laughs) being a really really broken down guy how is that sort of fine line established for you yeah well I mean he was um sort of simultaneously the most interesting character to write and also the most difficult because, yeah, we know Lando as the smooth-talking gambler slash part-time scoundrel slash entrepreneur businessman with a smile and a wink and a taste for fine things. And then what would happen to that kind of character when he has this tragedy which turns his life upside down where his daughter is lost uh, and kidnapped but not only that this book is set six years after she was kidnapped and he still hasn't found her so it's not just what is what is losing his daughter done to him it is what is the next six years done to him like you say he's still in Carusian, he's still Billy D. Williams but there's something about him that's different and you know when we first meet him in the book he's in a a bar it's not a cantina it's like the next level up from Cantina, it's a little bit more classy. Um, but he's playing Sabak and drinking, and he's he's fallen back into his own to his old ways because he can control that situation. You know, he's a gamer and a gambler, a fast talker and a smooth talker, and like he can control that situation in the middle of his life, which has kind of got out of control and has fallen apart. And he's aware of that within himself, and he's constantly trying to get that fire back within him to find his daughter to get everything back to how it should be so he's kind of like lando he's not he's not broken because i don't think lando can ever be broken but he's changed mm-hmm. this is the whole thing of the book it's like well he meets ochi and this kind of sets off this chain of events where he's like okay and he knows it as well he's projecting his need to find his daughter onto helping this family mm-hmm. 
And he's like, if I can't find my daughter and help her, I can help someone else. And this is going to set me up to continue my search. So he's got this amazing self-awareness of what he needs to do and his failures and that he knows he's been sliding back into just old habits. So when he meets up with Luke and like Luke and Lando were never really best friends you know the original trilogy they share like one line of dialogue and a handshake um and that's it i know there's more in the comics and books and things but especially at this point which is like if we say 17 years after indoor more or less Mm. like they've gone off in different directions lando is the family man or was the family man trying to kind of settle down and bring his daughter up in a kind of stable environment luke is fully immersed in reef Forming the Jedi Order, you know, searching the galaxy for artifacts and relics with Law Santeca and re-establishing a temple and kind of starting that whole thing off. So they've gone in really different paths. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, 20 years later, they've come back together. And they're not best friends, but they've got this history. They've got a 20-year history. And I think even if you're not best friends, just the nature of your history together means, you know, they can see the changes in each other. And they're also aware of, especially as the story progresses, how they kind of interact with each other and kind of help bring out the best, you know, because Lando is Lando Mm -hmm. and Luke is Luke and they're quite different people and each of them bring out the good in the other. Absolutely. And there's, there's so many great moments. Like there's something that one that stuck out to me. It's like half, halfway through the book, maybe two thirds in where they're on the Lady Luck, Lando's yacht. And they have this moment where Lando is showing off these two speeders that he has to Luke. And you can see that the young guy is still in there, yeah. but also that Luke, the Jedi is, is here. Not so much Luke, the farm boy that cared about bullseyeing womp rats and you see sort of how things have changed but also how they've stayed the same and they have those moments and i and i've described it and i know some of my friends have too putting the two of them together was so exciting because it's like lando is han's buddy who then meets leia and luke and grows to love them separately but it's like when you meet your friend's friend and then your friend leaves and it's just yeah. you and your friend's yeah. friend and you're like oh, exactly. do we have a relationship without them yeah. to see them sort of come to those those terms in, in really powerful ways see how much lando respects him and vice versa but also there's that lingering spe- uh, specter of what happened like you said over these six years the obvious questions that fans ask like was there did all the heroes get back together and try to find her yes they did um they talk about that here that we did try and even luke helped and tried and it just couldn't be done and and it enriches the end of rise of skywalker when Jana says, I don't know where I'm from. And Lando says, well, let's find out. Because he, he still has this, this mentality of, it happened to me, it's never going to happen again. I will make sure that other families don't have to go through what I went through. So as we start to wind down, how has writing this and contributing key things to the sequel trilogy and this middle era, how has it changed the way that you view them now as a fan? Because it's never going to be the same, I would imagine. No, Um yeah, and like this is if you if we call it maybe one of the first things that really directly links the original trilogy with the sequel trilogy, more so than just the characters appearing in the sequel trilogy, you know, Han and Chewie and 
Luke and all that. Like it's it's a bridge between them. Um, and like you said way back at the beginning, you know, writing the book was watching the sequel trilogy and the Rise of Skywalker over and over again, scene by scene, frame by frame, sometimes to to find stuff, which gave me a completely different perspective on the sequels and on the Rise of Skywalker in particular. You did go frame by frame because there are whole characters yeah. that are oh yeah just, are just glimpsed. <laughs> Uh, which is well, hilarious yeah, in all the detail. That's the thing. I like. I posted a screenshot that I just found somewhere, and and someone said, "Oh my god, you've posted a screenshot from a secret deleted scene that only you had access to in Rise of Skywalker." Because these two characters in the background was from Dathan and Miramir when they're being confronted by Ochi, and there's these two guys with guns, and it's like, no, they are in the movie. Like, you, <laughs> you like they are in there. You have to go and find them. So of course. It was like, well, who are they? Yeah. And why were they there? Um, and it just became another little pipe piece of the jigsaw puzzle that I managed to kind of um, put in. And in fact, they turned into characters, um, Boss Varga and Sarensko, <laughs> who I kind of love because they're kind of idiots. They're kind of idiots working for an idiot because Ochi is a bit of a, you know, he's not altogether there. He's a fool. And that's, that's, the, that's the power of that, that character. It's like, Ochi is, what if we took all of the dark, fantasy sort of macabre like he's he's got this horribly destroyed face and he needs these cybernetic eyes to see and he's a vicious killer and for people that have only consumed the films you know him as the scary alien that stabbed both of ray's parents and he has all of this mystique but then these comics these you know greg pock and charles soul everybody that's worked with him in marvel he's also an unhinged fool of he's like he's like if evil was a moron um so he's all of these things he has to be equal parts unsettling and funny which now i'm gonna i I, i'm gonna watch rise and i'm gonna think of your depiction here that's the thing is that that's why star wars is so it's not like the mcu where there's a constant forward momentum it it changes everything we're not gonna watch new hope the same way after this obi-wan kenobi show exactly yeah even going back to the from a certain point of view anthologies it's like you read those books you watch a new hope and empire strikes back in different ways and i think you know some people have said that they they now see the sequel trilogy in a new light having read shadow and it's like well that is i mean it's not the primary intention of the book but it was kind of inevitable because the book is so, so integral to to the bridge between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy so i think that's really kind of cool and yeah i need to it's funny i you know, been working on the book for so long, I need to take a moment and watch the sequel trilogy, not not for like research purposes, but just sit down and watch the three and see see what happens because yeah, there's there's stuff from all all I mean it's not just a, a Rise of Skywalker tie and it's the it covers stuff from all the three movies. Yeah. That would be kind of interesting, I think. It definitely is, yeah. It definitely is a prelude to the entire era. Like, of course, it spins directly out of a story we get in Rise, but it informs the entire the entire era, even in ways that aren't directly relevant to maybe what's going on with Luke and Lando. But between this book, the comics, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, there's a grand picture of what the New Republic is that's being painted. You get some, yeah. some great comedy of Luke and Lando thinking that because they are these grand heroes that they're going to get the red carpet treatment and they get hit with like paperwork or no, sorry, yeah, I can't no. help. But it's like, but, but don't you remember who we are? Like, which is yeah. sort of almost meta because we're we're them in that moment. Like, yeah. show yeah. some respect. These are these are the heroes. And yeah. some New Republic guys like, mm, no, nah, 
Sorry, mm-hmm. maybe, we'll yeah. be with you in a minute. An appointment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's so brutal. Um, now we will at some point have to reconvene here, you and I, and do a full spoiler deep dive because there are things that. I know I want to talk about there, like there are scenes at Luke's temple I want to talk about, that video game character I want to talk about, that I want to talk about an archaeological dig site. There are tons of things um, that I want to bring up, but we'll have to, we'll save that for a spoiler edition. We'll do it after the book comes out. We'll schedule that. But I want to end this with a Star Wars questionnaire. I don't know if you ever watched Inside the Actors Studio. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so I have a version of that. My tribute to James Lipton's tribute to Bernard Pivo by way of Star Wars. Adam Christopher, what is your favorite Star Wars word? Okay, I'm just going to sit here in silence for 10 minutes while I try and think of all the wonderful things. I'm going to call it a class of word because I, and this is cheating, I know, and I'm taking too long to answer, but it's the fact that in Star Wars you have words where they clearly sound like English words but are not English words. My favorite is uh, Kanja Club because (laughs) when I heard that in The Force Awakens, it was the most ridiculous line when he's like, well, tell that to Kanji Club. <laughs> it's just like, for the next week, I was like, what is he talking about? Like, that makes no sense. Uh, because, <laughs> of course, you think club, but it's not club, it's Kanji Club. Yeah. yeah. That's my favorite line and the way the guy that delivers it. Oh, that guy's yeah. great. Balatik, he's, yeah. he's fantastic. Yeah. We need the Balatik prequel novel now. When he's it's like, <laughs> uh, there's no one in the galaxy left for you to swindle. I was like, I love this guy. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> Um, now, what is your least favorite Star Wars word? I don't know. There's some which you can't even say because they sound uh, slightly offensive in English. Yeah. I don't think we use them anymore. Yeah. There's some good ones. You can look them up. There's, this, there's, a, there's a genre of music which is rather amusing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's go with that one. Shout out to the, uh, the modal nodes. <laughs> you yeah. know, you know. Uh, so James Lipton's question is, uh, what turns you on, which is so open and vague and potentially dirty. So uh, I've changed it to what turns you on slash creatively inspires you about Star Wars? Um, it's because it's everything. Because it's it's um, the biggest creative canvas that uh, exists in our kind of modern culture. And because of that, you can, you can do anything. Um, and it's Star Wars. If you can capture trying to capture what Star Wars is is simultaneously easy and difficult because we know what Star Wars is, but then when you try and define it, it's like, well, what is it? It's like, yeah, like I said before, it's everything. Yeah, it's you know when you see it almost in a lot of ways. Sometimes you'll see, if you go into the art of books, sometimes you'll see a costume design that was not ultimately accepted and... But then you put a scarf on it and you're like, oh yeah, now it works. Like it, yeah, it's those yeah, little things that yeah. it, it could be anything where like you have some great moments in this book with a group of droid pirate raiders, which feels so sci-fi and out there and weird in their connection to what's going on with the Sith plot. But because there is the lingering Sith plot thing that it just feels like, oh yeah, well, of course, of course yeah. these, these droid pirates would be there. Like that just yeah. they feel right. And again, um, they have they have this name which doesn't make any sense. It's like, yeah. why on earth are they called that? But it's Star Wars. Yeah. Like, of course it works. What challenges you or turns you off about Star Wars? I don't know. Because Star Wars is so big and you can tell any kind of story, that also means that not every story is for everybody. But I don't see that as a bad thing. I see it as a good thing because you can find your niche mm-hmm. and you can go for it which is kind of like a, non, a non-answer, but 
that's kind of you know obviously there's there's things about Star Wars I like more than other things, but like it doesn't matter yeah. because it's for someone else. Absolutely, I agree. What sound or noise do you love in Star Wars? Well, specifically, I love in The Force Awakens the sound of the lightsabers igniting in the final kind of snowy forest battle between Rey and Finn and Kylo. There's something about, I mean, lightsabers are cool, but there's something about the sound design of that when the saber snaps on. It's just, I remember when I first saw it in a proper theater, you know, with proper sound, and it's just mind-blowing. The sound. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And like, I know that Star Wars is often like nominated in various kind of technical award things for the Oscars and things. And I don't know, but I really hope it kind of won sound design because just that effect was, it was a lightsaber like I'd never heard before. I agree with you. And I, I know exactly what you're describing. That particularly, I mean, Kylo hits his and there's a spin. When Ray catches it and turns it on, I don't think it's ever sounded like fuller and rounder and sort of yeah, more, yeah. more more big and bold. It, whether that was, you know, just a choice that was made in post or if the idea was to, to introduce it to the new era. That's almost what it does, too, is that you know that there are kids that saw episode seven and that was their first one. And so you get that and that's like, wow. Um, yeah. I noticed that actually in Kenobi, um, when Reva uh ignites your lightsaber there's something in it as well there's some other quality that they've added which again because it's a dramatic moment it's like this is an inquisitor and this is her lightsaber and she's very bad news yeah so just to be able to convey that with sound i mean star wars is fantastic for sound absolutely um which is brings us to our funny follow-up question is there a sound or noise that you hate in star wars or one that frustrates you (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure there is i love Sometimes, yeah, maybe it's in the prequels. In Phantom Menace, there's a ship. It's quite early, and it appears in space. I don't know if it's even whatever that is. It just makes a slightly strange noise. Mm. It's like, it's like, okay, yeah, it's a Star Wars spaceship noise, which are quite distinctive, but there's something not quite right about it. Mm. Um, but then you're thinking, well, this is the prequel trilogy. This is 20 years before. Yeah. It's like yeah. he hasn't got a whatever kind of fancy model car now. He's got the, you know, the 20-year-old Toyota something, right. which like has a dodgy muffler, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Been through a lot. Uh, do you have a favorite galactic curse word in Star Wars? Um, that's a good question. And now I think about it, I'm not even sure if there's any in Shadow that I used. Not that I remember. I, think... I-, I love those moments. Like I- like Dag Ferrick's having a moment. Right uh, yeah, that's my favorite yeah. for sure. Dag Ferrick. I need to use it next time, I think. Yeah, we'll slide it. We'll do Shadow of the Sith Special Edition. And it'll just, it'll <laughs> just add some more words everywhere. Yeah. Uh, got three more here, uh, or four more. What profession would you like to attempt in Star Wars? Well, I mean, it has to be bounty hunting because um, you get to see the galaxy, I think. Mm. Uh, and you get the cool the cool gear and armor. What profession would you not like to attempt? It's the worst job in the galaxy. You know, there's quite a few bad jobs in the galaxy. Most of them involving some kind of refuse or waste management, I'm sure. Um, I think, it's funny, I think the Adnauts have a really bad job on Bespin, but then I also think they quite enjoy it. Mm. so because like they're specialists they do it really well but i mean you could say bounty hunter again because like it's dangerous and i think i would be really far too nervous 
Yeah, it's almost like, like what job would I want? High level bounty hunter. What job would I not want? Low level bounty. Hunter. Yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> like, see what happens to them. Yeah, we'll see what happens to them. A rookie. Uh, now this usually is the last question, but I started adding an eleventh that way we don't end on a heavy note. So if you stepped into the dark side cave on Dagobah or the mirror cave on Octo or Mortis or any of these places, what do you think you would see? Um, I don't know. I'd see myself in a giant clock reminding me that I'm running out of time because I'm kind of running out of time on a daily basis. But also there's the kind of big, we're all running out of time. Yeah. However, that would manifest as a force vision. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that's a, that's an interesting answer so so far i've only done this questionnaire a couple of times and it does sort of force you to somebody said i would face a, a dark version of myself kind of like yoda and ray's of course was the million copies of her none of whom had the answer she wanted it, it's sort of interesting a big a giant clock however they read clock i guess an orabesh clock in, in the star wars galaxy yeah definitely it induces some anxiety um, so yeah, again, James Lipton, for those of you that don't know, used to end with the, if you went to the pearly gates, what do you think God would say? And so I had to make a Star Wars version of that. And then I thought, well, that's kind of grim to end on. So everyone gets their own personal 11th question Ooh. related to whatever they're doing or promoting or talking about. And so for you, sir, I have to ask as a fan, what's next for, for Luke and Lando? What are you dying to see? What's the story with either them or both that hasn't been told that you're itching to explore there's so much because there's still when this book finishes there is still 13 years yeah to go before the force awakens and i've seen bits of it in things like the rise of Kyrene comic and bloodlines novel by claudia gray but there's still stuff that we saw in the sequel trilogy whether it was flashbacks or visions or um people just saying something that we haven't seen yet um some of which absolutely involves luke and lando so yeah i mean there's so much so much available and i'm sure that there's a in the back of your mind without saying anything that you can't say you let them interact with a lot of characters but there are so many more that they could where it's just what is the i mean daniel jose (laughs) older's last shot has han and lando couple years you know ben solo is only two in that book but it's like what is the what's the older guy adventure like is you know what what is they're sort of these old rascals so uh this has been such a great talk and i am very pleased with our ability to have had such a great talk without really spoiling anything which goes to show how much there is to talk about here Um, (laughs) like once once when the details start flying and when this comes out they probably already are. I think this is going to be a huge, um, you know, an article gets written about every chapter type situation where you've opened up the floodgates for so much exciting stuff. And I think this will become people's favorite very quickly. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I think this is excellent. You did a kick-ass job. I'm so excited for whatever you're going to do next in Star Wars. I'm sure you'll be back whenever that is. Best thing about like novel lead times is that I'm saying this and you might have just like finished another Star Wars book and I won't know (laughs) until a year from now. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, what else you have coming down the pipeline, what else they might like, because you've also got a bevy of original stuff that is non-IP related. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter as uh, Ghostfinder, which is also Star Wars canon. So you can look it up on Wikipedia and <laughs> learn about Ghostfinder, which means I also can't change it now. I'm stuck with it. And I'm on Instagram as Adam Christopher Writer, which is a far more boring username, which is not on Wikipedia. Um, my website is adamchristopher.me, which has all my other books. Um, 
I wrote, I always kind of recommend two books of mine, um, Stranger Things, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Even if you're not such a Stranger Things um, devotee, I think it works as a kind of weird supernatural crime thriller. It's um, a bit of a backstory for Jim Hopper, the chief of police of Hawkins, when he was a detective in New York City in 1977. During the famous blackout, um, he encounters something kind of strange in the darkness um which is very really cool i mean i enjoyed writing it and i think it's a fun fun book and i also recommend a book i did called made to kill which is about a robot detective in 1960s hollywood who is actually an assassin but he doesn't know it because he's got a 24-hour memory tape which keeps having to get wiped because this is the height of technology in the 1960s um, when the robot revolution has come and gone and he's the last one left. So that's kind of fun. And again, you can find that on my website. There'll be links there if people want to check it out. Awesome. So all those links are going to be down in the description for everybody to check out. Adam, thanks so much for making the time. I know it's uh, much later for you over there than it is for me over here. So you could pop off, grab some dinner and knock out, I'm sure. Uh, You've got a ton of these to do. Um, So thanks so much for making the time. We'll talk about a number of things. Again, uh, I'm dead serious. We're going to do a super spoiler um, once this uh, is all out in the open. As for this show, you can find me personally at that Alden Diaz, T-H-A-T-A-L-D-E-N-D-I-A-Z. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find this show everywhere you get your podcast, Octo Radio, A-H-C-H-T-O Radio. Octo is that place that Luke ends up uh, exiling himself to after this book. This this is Luke out and about before we get Luke um, sitting around, um, which is not a dig. I love Luke in the sequel trilogy, but it is nice to see him a little less sad than he would later be. Uh, We also do our Rebels rewatch here, our rewatch Between Worlds, where we are going through all of Star Wars Rebels and all of the behind the scenes stuff. It's our most probably nitty gritty show. We take the 22 minute episodes of Rebels and turn them into like hour and a half long discussions. And so plenty of stuff going on in the world of Star Wars. We'll be talking about Shadow of the Sith, I'm sure, for months and months and months to come because it's about to become very, very important. And uh, yeah, upcoming, we've got some other people from the Lucasfilm side of things, some other authors going to be joining us on. Pick up Shadow of the Sith, head down to the links below, and we'll catch you next time. Punch it, Chewie!